You're listening to the Phillies Nation podcast with Ty Daubert and Johnny Heller on philliesnation.com. What's going on, everybody? Uh, welcome back to the Phillies Nation podcast. I'm your host, Ty Daubert, coming at you with a very special 2018 Philadelphia Phillies season edition of the podcast. Uh, you know, we've been going down all the seasons of the rebuild. Of course, the rebuild was really coming to uh, the end at this point, but it was a, an interesting season for the team at at this point in 2018, and I'm very excited to talk about it. As always, I have my co-host Johnny Heller here to talk with me, and we have a special guest with us today again. So Johnny, why don't you tell us how you're doing, and then you can introduce our guest for us. Sure, yeah. Um doing pretty well uh, excited to talk about the 2018 Phillies I think they were like objectively the the funnest team of uh since like the 08 to 11 stretch um and like you said we're, we're joined by special guest um it's uh sports radio 94 WIP's Joe Gillio. Joe how you doing I'm doing well guys excited to uh to join you and I, I agree with that I, they were the most fun team and then that's not saying much because uh, obviously it's been a bad decade but yeah, I, mean, I, I said it last May that I thought the 2018 team was more fun than what became the 2019 team. It's funny, people look back and there's like a lot of like, oh, they collapsed, but, and we'll get into it. I, I thought for the most part that season was pretty compelling, that 2018 Phillies team. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, mean, I would agree there. Yeah. They, um, they were first place for most of the season when they really were not expected to. Uh, I watched the 2018 Phillies video yearbook to... Um, to kind of prepare for this episode, and Reese Hoskins narrated it. And at the end of it, he said something to the effect of, uh, yeah, maybe didn't go the way we wanted it to right at the end, but in spring training, if you would have told me that we'd be playing meaningful games at the end of the year, I would have I would have been good with that. And I, I think Phillies fans should probably agree with that, that there were not huge expectations for the Phillies going into 2018. Uh, they really overperformed in a lot of, in a lot of uh, sense, but you know they they did play meaningful games at the end of the year, and they made it interesting for most of the season. Yeah, I mean, like when when you like you said when you look back, that team honestly was not very good. Like they should not have won as many games as they did, or at least you know been in first place in the middle of August. Um, but that's what made it a fun year. Yeah, um, I think we can really dive into it with some of the off-season acquisitions that the Phillies had. They added some some pretty key players before the 2018 season, and of course they made a managerial change as well. Uh, Johnny, I'll let you lead us off with that one. Sure, yeah. They um, hired Gabe Kapler as their manager. It was definitely um, like a, a change of, of pace for a team that had had uh, Charlie Manuel and Ryan Sandberg and Pete McCannon. Um, Kapler came out of the Dodgers organization, um, you know, and had a focus on on analytics, which obviously that's like a a big word that people use, um, and sometimes you know it, it, it has perception, but uh, you know it it was just basically the Phillies, which were not a forward thinking organization, or like have historically not been over the last. 10, 15 years when other teams have started to go that way, um, kind of showing that they want to uh, continue to go that way. You know, they hired Clentac, 
in, in 2015. So this was just another um, way to show that they were they were trending in that direction. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Joe, you have I know Gabe is definitely your guy. Uh, do you have any thoughts about the hiring that offseason? Yeah, I remember um, the, the lead-up to well. You know, the Phillies uh, move off of Pete McCann at the end of the year. And, that, and they, look, I, I think that you go back to that, and, and some people were surprised. They played well down the stretch in 17. I think Pete was well-liked um, just by fans. I think people were a little bit surprised, but I, I thought the whole thing made sense. That it was time to, you know, they obviously turned the page in the front office. I thought it was time to turn the page in the managerial seat. And, you know, the, the, one of the names we heard was Dusty Wathen, who had obviously worked his way up in the minor league system into a lot of the guys were going to be part of this thing. So I thought he made some sense, but as soon as I heard Gabe Kapler's name, I was like, that, that's, that's the guy like that's he, and I, I didn't really know much about him post career. I mean, I, I kind of followed what he was doing, but just the idea of Gabe Kapler made sense to me. Like let's bring in a guy that's outside the box that has worked with a great organization. That's been gr- really good in player development, which is at that point, and we're talking way before the Phillies were a Bryce Harper, you know, contender. Like, basically, it was going to be about player development. Like, I just thought the idea of, of Gabe made sense. And then once he got here and once he was introduced and I heard him speak, because uh, I didn't really hear him speak much when he was a player, I realized right away this was going to be really polarizing and uh, and, and Philadelphia Phillies fans would would be split and, and mostly uh, need to be convinced that this guy knew what he was doing. I, I could just tell that the first time he spoke in Philadelphia. Yeah, he was definitely not the prototypical Philadelphia coach that you would imagine. Uh, normally, you think of guys like Charlie Manuel, more of the the old school type of managers and coaches. Uh, and, and Gabe Kapler was obviously not that. Um, so like you said, off the bat, it was always going to be interesting. Um, the Phillies in the offseason, uh, in addition to the manager changed. They made some pretty big signings, um, adding Carlos Santana to their roster. Uh, they signed him to a pretty big deal. And then in spring training, um, they, this was the off season, even more so than 2019, where it felt like a lot of names. Uh, they waited a long time, a long time to, to sign contracts. Um, and then they signed Jake Arietta in spring training. And kind of before the Bryce Harper deal happened the next year, the uh, the plane landing in spring training with Jake Arietta getting out, that was almost a sign of the Phillies, uh, you know, trying to become this big market money-spending type of team that, that would spend their money on players. Uh, and then, of course, the next season they would do something pretty similar. So those were pretty big additions. Uh, you know, the thoughts on Arietta, some people might have liked it more than others just because it was pretty clear that they were not going to get 2015 Jake Arietta, but uh, he was a big name nonetheless. And, and Carlos Santana signing, he was a, you know, a, a veteran with a lot of good years in, uh, in the past for him. And that would, of course, allow them to have two pretty big bats in their lineup with Santana. And then they moved Reese Hoskins to left field, which I know Johnny has a lot of thoughts about uh, with his defensive play there. So they they signed two big free agents, and it looked like they were ready to uh, maybe not win the division in 2018, but they 
they were done with being at the bottom of of the barrel in regards to the NL East and and major league teams as a whole. Yeah, I mean, like both of those signings definitely like you said was kind of like uh signaling to the rest of the league and signaling to agents that they were, you know, moving past the rebuild and coming out of it and you know, a relatively big market team that was ready to spend. Um I think both both were somewhat questionable deals for different reasons like i think carlos santana was a you know a very good player professional hitter who was uh worth that money but the problem obviously was that you know reese hoskins had been called up the year before clearly could not handle left field and you know the the phillies basically said all right you know we're signing a first baseman to a three-year contract so you're gonna have to um you know, stick in left field, which obviously he only ended up having to do for one season. Um, and then the Arietta deal, I think it was clear to everyone that he was declining um, to some extent. Uh, but like like you said, um, everyone knew it wasn't going to be 2015 Arietta, but everyone also expected that it would at least he would at least be productive. Um, and I, I do remember towards the close of the beginning of that off season. Um, the Cubs had, I think, offered him something similar to what they ended up paying you, Darvish. So, obviously, three years, seventy-five million. That's ended up being a lot to spend on what Arietta has been able to produce, which hasn't been much. But at the end of the day, I do think it could have been worse. Yeah, Joe, do you have any thoughts on those yeah, signings? Yeah, so yeah, both of those. I, I remember, um, like, I, I remember the feelings I had then, and then how my feelings started to change a lot. I will say this about both of those moves that that they made. I feel like throughout Matt Klintak's era, and I don't think Matt is, is very good uh, as a GM. I also don't think he's he's horrendous. I just I just think he's below average. But I think that in a lot of moves Klintak makes, you, like you could squint and see the idea. Like in a vacuum, I understood both of those moves, and I and I like Santana a lot as a player, and I was okay with it because I thought this was the time to experiment. Like screw it, let, let you know they put Hoskins out in left field anyway when they had Tommy Joseph. So obviously. They thought that it could be passable enough with a full offseason. So I was excited, and I thought the, the kind of offensive player Santana was, was was exactly what they wanted and what Gabe wanted you know, in his lineup. So I, I thought that fit, obviously, in a vacuum, that's not where the game is played, and Reese was the worst left fielder I've ever seen over a full season. So that didn't work. Uh, and then the other part with Arietta, and I really, I, I've always thought that that was more of a Middleton production than a contact production because this doesn't fit with the way... Uh, Klintak has, has tried to do things, but I think in a vacuum it was fine. I, you know, we knew he was declining. If you had told me he'd be league league average for three years, I would have I would have you know, kind of accepted that. What I didn't know then, guys, and I don't I don't know if they realized was how quickly they would bump up against the luxury tax, which obviously became a theme, you know, in the moment now. Like if you go back three years ago and you told me you could have Arietta three seventy five, but two years from now. You're going to be passing on good players in part a lot because of that contract. I would say, what what are we doing? Like, well, what, that's it's ridiculous. It's not worth it. They're not going to win anything the first two years of the contract anyway. Just don't do it. So in a vacuum, I got both, but like you start to go through the weeds, and, and neither really made much sense. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree with the the point on the luxury tax. I mean, they could have um, instead if they hadn't given Arietta that contract, they could have signed some like a Patrick Corbin last year who you're paying for part of his prime and then you know the latter half of that contract is more the Arietta type production but really they paid Arietta ace level money um 
when he's clearly past his prime, and it, it, like you said, it costs them um, not being able to spend elsewhere. Yeah, and look, I mean, I, I think part of that, too, was kind of um, getting an in back with Boris, who has never been, you know, the Phillies and Boris have never had the perfect relationship with, to way back in the day. And so I, I think that was kind of restarting that. And did that help at all? Even a little bit with the Bryce thing? Maybe. So, I mean, there could be tentacles to it that, that we're not thinking of because we're just looking at, like, what Arietta's been. I don't think it helps that he's not very likable. He's not he's not easy to root for. I don't think most fans of Philadelphia like a declining Jake Arietta. So that doesn't help, but... Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, neither deal worked out the way that they wanted it to. Yeah, I I think that just about everybody would agree there, and probably even the Phillies. Um, moving on into the actual season um, in 2018, they opened up the season in Atlanta. Uh, opening day, the Phillies they they look pretty good. Reese Hoskins has a big. A big hit in this game. The Phillies are up. Aaron Nola's cruising. And then 68 pitches in. Gabe Kapler pulls Aaron Nola. Um, like I said, at 68 pitches. He brings in the lefty Hobie Milner to uh, face the lefty Freddie Freeman. And it did not go as planned. So, Johnny, would you like to talk about that opening day game? a little more the decision and kind of the implications that had on people's perception of Gabe Kapler and the Phillies pretty much the rest of the season. It all started with that opening day. Sure, yeah, like you said, um, Nola was pretty much cruising into the sixth inning, um, and Kapler pulled him with one out, um, and Middle came in, gave up a home run to Freddie Freeman, um, and then, you know, the Phillies were up 5-2, I think, at that point, and the game kind of unraveled as it went on, and, and they ultimately lost, I think, on a walk-off, yeah. Um, yeah, Mark Hakis, right off of Neris. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like like Joe said earlier, as soon as Kapler was hired, it was, it was clear that he was going to be kind of a d- divisive guy in terms of just, you know, he's... You know, just the word analytics it splits people right then and there. Um, not a typical manager, obviously. And um, whether or not this was the right move, I mean, Ty, I mean, you have talked about this a few times, I think. Um, you know, coming right out of spring training, we don't know how stretched out Aaron Ola's arm is. Um, maybe, it, you know, he wasn't ready to throw 90 up to 100 pitches in his first outing. Um, like, you know, it... it Obviously, it went about about as poorly as it could have because the the bullpen blew it. And then um, this, combined with a couple other things that we'll talk about that happened this series, really, it was just a horrible first impression um, for the for the Philadelphia fan base um, for Gabe Kapler. Yeah, it's first and first impressions last. And people say sometimes they don't, but for Gabe, they did. And I remember, guys, I was on the air right after the game, and the reaction was just. It was incredible for like the, for the first game of the season for one of one sixty two. It was just off the charts how upset people were at what he did, um, and and the whole analytics thing became a thing. Like this is nonsense. It's ridiculous. This is not baseball. And I think the point you made was was one I tried to then. It was you know it was on deaf ears. But yeah, I don't know how many pitches Nola could have went that day anyway. I mean, as the game went on, I, I'm thinking back. I, I think in that spring training they didn't really stretch them out. 
much past 60-ish. So, like, was he 75 that day, and he was at the upper 60s, and he took him down with the left? Who knows? Obviously, it was a it didn't work, and it, it turned out to, you know, open the floodgates for Atlanta. But, yeah, that was just and, – and I'm sure we'll go through more of them. We'll hit on more of them. I, I just off the top of my head, and I haven't looked back at, like, all the box tours uh, recently, but I remember that year. They had probably 10, maybe 15 just crushing losses. For a team that won 80 games, and I know everyone has tough losses over 162, but they had a lot of those, like a ridiculous amount for a 500-ish team that they lost games that you were like, oh my goodness, that, that's, a, that's just a punch to the stomach, and it, it started on an opening day there. Yeah, and then also that, that series, they had the incident where Gabe Kapler, he tried to bring Hobie Milner in again to a game, but did not ever warm him up in the bullpen. The umpires were not very happy about that. Um, with Gabe, it was definitely not a very good look for for Gabe and for the whole team. Um, so, what do you what do you guys remember about that one and kind of the backlash from him not ever warming up his reliever? So that one for me, that, I think that was a Saturday night game. Uh, they open on the Thursday, and then the day off Friday, maybe, and then the Saturday was that this game we're talking about with Hobie, um, and he wasn't warmed up. I remember it because it was actually that was Easter weekend, and I was actually um, visiting some family. I was at my sister-in-law's house, and I wasn't watching the game live. I was kind of listening, um, but she, she lived out of market. She lives in D.C., so we were just down there visiting, and I got like five texts, and then my phone was buzzing. I was like, what is going on? Like, And a bunch of people were like, this is your boy. This is your manager. You wanted this guy? And I was like, what did he do? It's the, se- it's the second game. This can't be every game. And then I, you know, I kind of caught up and realized what happened. That that still remains the strangest thing. And I feel like it was maybe this offseason or last one that Andy McPhail kind of said something in the press conference. There was more to that. I, I would love to find out what happened if it was it was simply just miscommunication because I I don't know if we'll ever see that again. It was it was the strangest thing. Like and. He brought in relievers all the time, so obviously he knew the process of getting them up. It was just, I don't know what that was. <laughs> he, used a, he used probably a million relievers in the first game. He already had enough, enough practice. Right. <laughs> John, do you have any yeah. thoughts about that one? I mean, it was just, like Joe said, it was bizarre. Um, and it was, you know, whether or not whose fault it was or, you know, if it was a miscommunication or whatever, it was just, you know, another factor that ultimately led to... Uh, Gabe Kapler being booed at the home opener, which I don't think I've ever seen, um, you know, a, a manager make that bad a first impression, you know, whether or not it was entirely his fault that quickly. Um, yeah. He was, he was booed loudly. Like, very, that was bad. I, I, like you said, I don't think a coach or anything um, like that has had such a poor reaction from their home fan base in their first, uh, their first home game in their tenure. I don't and it, think. And it was two. It was multiple boos, guys. Like I, I was there at the game, so he, he had the introductory boo, right, when they introduced the players on the on the, the the lines. But then I think it was the sixth inning. Pavetta started that game, the home opener against Miami, and Pavetta's pitching. He actually pitched pretty well, like maybe like five ish innings and a yeah. decent amount of strikeouts. And then Gabe went to get him. I think Justin Bohr, who ironically eventually made his way out to the team. Justin Bohr was coming up for the Marlins, and he went to go put Adam Morgan in, and like the, this maybe the top of the six, 
and he got I mean he got lustily booed for making what I thought was a routine pitching change. Like your right handed young starter gets you through five ish and you go to the lefty reliever against the lefty slugger and it was like just rained upon booze. And then of course Morgan did the job. He got a strikeout and I was like, What what are, what have just happened? Like why why did he get booed? Oh man. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at the box score now. Pavetta he thrown 97 pitches five and two thirds like like you said it was a pretty routine uh pitching change but obviously um phillies fans already had it in their mind (laughs) any (laughs) any pitching change was bad yep as Um, long as it was made by him that homestand it was a six game homestand and they when they came in one and four and they won five of six games so um it was like a overall a good showing um that homestand i think that's when Kingery had his grand slam and his walk-off sack fly for the one week that he was actually a productive uh, player in 2018. Um, but yeah, they, they ended up having a pretty good week. Yeah, um, like you said, Scott Kingery was good at the beginning of the season. Um, early on, he he had a walk-off sack fly in there. He had a, a grand slam mixed in there and then after that uh he was probably one of the worst full-time shortstops uh just from overall production pretty much um that i can think of like he was very very bad they um they obviously signed him to that extension during spring training so that he would be on the team during the 2018 season he started off as kind of uh, this super utility guy, which I think makes him a lot more valuable being able to play all these different positions. But um, J.P. Crawford, I believe, got hurt, so Kingery kind of settled in a, to shortstop, and we can talk about his season next because there were some expectations for him going into that season, and other than the very beginning, he did not live up to those. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's a, a general criticism of of the way the Phillies handle their minor leaguers. Like they they'll draft college bats and keep them, you know, too low for too long. Like Alec Bohm started last season in Lakewood, and there's really no reason for that. You know, he's he was what 22 years old. Like he he was a polished college bat. He didn't need to um, start that low, and then they do that, and then they just kind of call guys up too quickly I think they did that with Crawford um, I think they probably did that with Kingery um, but obviously you know the the Kingery thing might work out long term because he was a lot better last year but that first season he clearly just wasn't ready for to be a, a full-time major league player and they kind of jumped the gun on that yeah they did um, the, the spring training I, I think it forced their end I mean ultimately I think it's going to work because the contract was so team friendly. Like even if he's just, uh, even if he's just really the player he was last year for the next six or seven years, you know, it's a good contract. So um, I think it's going to work out in the end. But yeah, the expectation. I remember, remember that spring training before this this season we're talking about Dustin Pedroia. Uh, you know, the comparisons were off the charts. Like what he was going to be, and then he was that for a week, and then you know, quite frankly, he didn't hit again. I mean, it's hard to think of a hit he had past April the, until, like, September he, he started to hit a little bit again. And that was it. Like, but for four months, he just was just there. And and actually, the most interesting thing about him was, was watching him as a defensive player because 
I, I thought the one thing that people got upset about when they moved him to different positions, but they were right about was he really can play everywhere. Like you give him like 10, 10 games, two weeks, and he took to any position. And obviously, you know, in this particular season, it had to become shortstop full time with all the injuries they had. But that that part was probably the most interesting part of his rookie year that he really could play anywhere they put him. Yeah, I think like you said, a lot of people think that that um, is a negative that they they played him everywhere and. And, you know, people say that is why he couldn't hit, which um, isn't, I don't think it's logic that really follows. But um, I think by, you know, giving him experience in center field and shortstop and third base, they're just making him a more valuable player. Like, versatility is so important in today's league. You look at guys like Ben Zobris, and um, Scott Kingery probably will never be Ben Zobris because he's, uh, you know, probably the best utility player of this generation but um still i think by making him not just a everyday second baseman they even if he can't hit you know can't be a, a great hitter if he can just be a solid hitter and, and play everywhere that's a really really valuable thing to have especially at his contract yeah you know what i think sometimes happens people look for reasons why someone that they're they want to believe that could be great isn't and so the natural one that the two that we've talked about a lot the last couple of years reese hoskins and and um and Kingery, and I think every time they struggle, fans try to like compartmentalize, like, "Hey, they're supposed to be really good." Well, what's the reason? So Kingery is well, they played him in too many different positions, and with with Hoskins, it's been well. First, he was in the wrong position in left field, so we'll move him to first base and he'll be better. That didn't really play out. And then it, with him, it's also been like, well, he can't hit on all these spots in the order: first, second. He's got to just be fourth. And I think that's kind of nonsense too. But just I think we people look, fans look for reasons why this guy we heard about and had some promise in one moment or a couple months is, is just okay or just good and, and not special. Yeah, I think I, I think I would agree with that, that, um, you know, maybe the, maybe that reasoning isn't exactly correct, but people, they look for, they look for reasons, um, that people might be struggling. There was a lot of, you talked about, um, the, the batting order thing. There was a, Gabe Kapler, he in that first season, he he changed in in 2019 a little bit. Um, he he changed a lot of things in 2019. I think to kind of uh, maybe not make people freak out so much, or maybe to keep the players in a little bit more of a routine. But in 2018, he changed the batting order around a lot, and that was something that people were not huge fans of. But when your team is not that that good when when the the teams in your division like the uh like the Nationals and the Braves pretty clearly have uh better rosters than you do i i think that you kind of have to optimize your lineup each night depending on who you're going to start and who the pitcher is going to be people didn't like that but i think there was something to trying to find uh every edge possible when you're competing for a division that you're probably uh, a little outmatched to to win. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that when I look back, I think the biggest um, kind of disappointment I have of, of the Gabe uh, era as the manager, and I'll put contact with them, like there, there's the combination of those two, is that in the, I don't think they went as far as they wanted to and as far as they could have. Like, I, I thought the best job Gabe did was 18, you know, the, the first four and a half, five months of 18, just getting what he got out of that team. And last year, he, he didn't do it as much. I think they were trying to 
keep peace, maybe both in the clubhouse with some more high-profile players and veterans, and then in the fan and the fan base too. Like I heard an interview Gabe did. You guys might remember this. It was with on like the sports media podcast with Jimmy Trainer. It was a couple years ago. It was during eighteen, and it was he was asked about the Phillies maybe using the opener, which Gabe eventually did it a couple times, but it was it was very rare. Uh, other teams have done it way more. And and Gabe said something to the fact of like I'm not sure the city can handle it. And then like last year, Clintac talked about uh, how the, the city handled things. Like it's like. They, they wanted to go full what their plan was, and they kind of half-assed it. And that always that always struck me as like, well, if you're going to do it, you might as well just do it your way. But um, in 18, he did it his way for the first four and a half months. It was, it was fun. Johnny, you got anything on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. It was it was definitely fun. Um, and I, I do think, like, in, in 19, the roster was kind of more set. You know, you had... You know Andrew McCutcheon and, and Bryce Harper and, and Gene Segura and these guys that you didn't have the year prior that were you know clear everyday players. So I think that that also played a role in yep. in him kind of setting lineups because you know you go into 2018 and there's a Nick Williams and Aaron Altair platoon and um, you know JB Crawford's playing shortstop and all all these guys who are kind of um, not consistent. And like Ty said, it was just better to optimize lineups every night based on. Uh, what they were going against. Yeah, Alfaro and Nath. Like they, they, it's amazing how many players, like you look at the lineups there, and it was really, it was really mostly just Santana and Hoskins. Like if, if they were going, they would they would score some runs, but if they weren't, it was just like, how are they going to score tonight? Yeah, uh, exactly. And we could, we could talk a little bit about Santana and Hoskins' seasons in 2018. Um, you know, early on in the season, Santana really struggled and I don't I don't know if that was it exactly um you know had anything to do with how he was playing specifically and just kind of uh he got some bad luck on batted balls like he he was hitting balls early on in the season that would just go right at people and it tanked his batting average and and overall production for most of the season but in in March April uh Santana he just didn't he didn't get base hits, and that kind of that kind of changed people's perception of him. I think overall he was mostly the same player. Matt Klentak went on to say this uh, in 2019. It kind of angered some people because uh, Santana in 2019 had basically a career year with the Indians, and Klentak was basically like, "Yeah, he he is uh, he's just about the same player with a little more batted ball luck," uh, and. Sure, if you're a fan, that isn't exactly what you want to hear when you get rid of a player and um, he has a career year, but I think there's definitely some truth to it um, in that regard. And, uh, Joe, you mentioned this earlier, uh, his skill set, like the idea of Santana's skill set as a hitter, really, I think, fit their lineup well. He was almost, um, in kind of what they're good at, he's kind of just um, a you know, kind of a light version of Bryce Harper in the sense that he he draws a lot of walks and hits for power and sees a lot of pitches. Um, so obviously they would add a, a better version of that the next season. But um, but yeah, well, I just want to know what you guys think of Santana's season with the Phillies there. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's it's in the same kind of vein as um, 
the Gabe thing where the, the perception or the first impression became everything. Like if you just had, if you take Santana six months with the Phillies and just put his first season in the fourth season, like just flip flop him, no one notices. Like oh yeah, he's in a little slump, but but we're looking at his batting average on May you know tenth or whatever it was, and he's hitting one ninety. Like that sticks to people. That that's the whole beginning of a season. Like this guy stinks. We paid him twenty something million a year. He stinks. But that's. That's what it was. It was just a bad stretch. And then he really hit, you know, from, I don't know, May 15th on. The guy was the regular Carlos Santana. And I mentioned earlier, I think Klintak has a lot of ideas that you squint and you see what he's thinking and it makes sense. I nod along. And it just doesn't work. Like, it's just the execution doesn't work. Like, look about Santana's career. I think he's had one other season similar to the, the Phillies one. It was like one of his Indians years, maybe like 12 or 13, and a very similar season. And all the other ones have been quite good and last year was was very good so it's like the Phillies luck like they get one of his two down years and he's gonna probably play what 15 years in the big leagues it's just like how does that happen yeah and and Ty mentioned like part of it was just bad at ball luck um I'm looking at Santana's fan graphs page right now. He had a 231 batting average on balls in play, which was by far his lowest. Um, and like his peripherals were pretty similar in 2018 and 2019. Like he had a higher walk percentage and a lower strikeout percentage in 2018. Um, so part of it was bad luck. And um, you know, Joe, you mentioned something about you know Matt Clentak and and Gabe Kapler not you know fully committing. And uh, something Ty has mentioned a few times is that. It's kind of odd that the Phillies, you know, gave Santana this three-year, $60 million contract, and then after one year that was, you know, he struggled for a month and a half, and he was mostly the same player, maybe some some bad luck. Um, they immediately were like, all right, we can't, we can't keep this guy anymore. And part of that was obviously the Hoskins in left field thing not working out, but um, for a while it looked like Santana was going to be the, the opening day third baseman last year. Um, and it was just interesting, you know. They gave they give him this contract one off season, and then he's he's gone the next. It is, and to go to the value thing, like they paid him good value, and they traded him at his lowest value, and and that trade, I mean, right now it looks like a loss, you know, that you trade away Santana after one year for Gene Segura as a more premium position, obviously at shortstop, but now he's not even the shortstop anymore. So it's like the whole transaction, you know, you kind of look at it year by year for this one thing they did, and it's just seems to get worse here yeah i i was a little surprised but i i think they were so shaken by how it didn't work and i think they wanted to try to make reese one of the faces of this franchise and we'll, you know time will tell if, if they're going to be right on that they don't it doesn't look great right now but he's obviously productive enough but i think they just wanted to do right by him and put him back at first base and see if it would make him better and um, yeah, it's weird. The Carlos Santana thing, like, you think back when his career ends, like, yeah, that, that was a weird year in Philadelphia. Reese Hoskins played left field, and they've gone in a year in a, in a weird trade for Segura. I think it's kind of funny how uh, Santana will probably retire playing uh, the rest of his career with with Cleveland, and then you'll look at his baseball reference page or his Wikipedia page or something, and there's just, just going to be a weird season right in the middle uh, playing in Philadelphia, the rest in in Cleveland, so that'll it, it's definitely a, a weird time for his career. Um, but we we mentioned Reese Hoskins a little bit there. We can talk about his season as well. He started off pretty pretty hot. Uh, I said earlier he had a he had a key hit. I believe it was a double on opening day. Um, he for most of the season he batted either two or four. Uh, 
Santana and him switched there for the most part. Santana also batted leadoff some, if I remember correctly. But um, but Hoskins he was one of the, he was either batting second or, or fourth for most of that season, and early on he was productive, and then he um he went into a little bit of a slump, and then I believe this was in Los Angeles against the Dodgers. He managed to foul a ball off his face somehow. I'm not ex- that I've never seen that before. Like it didn't bounce it, and then bounce up into his face. It hit the bat and went straight into his jaw and he broke his jaw and he was out for a little while and he came back with this fancy helmet with two ear flaps and and two uh two C flap the jaw protectors. Um and once he came back from that, he really he was hot after after that um cooled down a little bit at the end of the season wasn't wasn't great at the end um but at the beginning and then towards the middle when he came back with that that crazy helmet he was he was really good and i i think overall he was pretty clearly the the Phillies best hitter for that season yeah, he was. Um, and the thing that about Reese that you kind of it stands out. One, I, I do like his profile. I, I think that his 2017 when he first arrived, he think gave people the wrong impression. Like, wow, this is a superstar. He's not that. He's probably closer to to Carlos Santana, ironically, offensively, than he is, you know, a future MVP. But that's good. I mean, the, the Phillies could could still get a lot out of him as a career goes on. But the, the one thing that, that we started to realize, and we realized it in 17, but in a positive way, and then 18 and 19 in, in positive and negative ways, he's one of the streakiest good offensive players I have ever watched. I'm 33. I mean, I can't, I, I've watched baseball for like 25, 28 years. Like I can't think of anyone as good as him. Like obviously bad players were going to crazy slumps, but I can't think of anyone as, as good offensively as Reese Hoskins that has, the peaks and valleys he has. Like, when he's hot for two weeks, you know, he's as productive as anyone in baseball, the best hitters. And then when he goes cold, I mean, in, in parts, he's, he's helped tank two seasons because he just goes so cold that they can't score. If they had better players around him, it'd be different. But based on the structure of the roster, like, when, when he goes as cold as he does, guys, like he did it in 18, it's just, it's like the offense just goes into just negative gear. They can't move. Yeah, they really, uh, like you said, they especially in 2018, uh, they could not afford for him to not be good. They just weren't built, um, you know, as they weren't built strong enough to uh, handle Reese Hoskins being bad for a long period of time. Uh, And they kind of, they they really do need him. He's one of the more key players on the team, obviously. Uh, Early on, even last season in 2019, uh, when he was on in the beginning of the season, they were they were good in the beginning of the season, and then the second half, uh, they just never went on that run, and maybe that is a product of Hoskins not being productive at all during the second half. Um, but but yeah, his 2018 season definitely, um, I think there are a little more peaks than valleys, but definitely um, there's a, a big contrast between the two for him overall. Yeah, and like so, the thing about twenty eighteen is his. It's not that they were like the the peaks and valleys were incredibly short lived, but it would it would be like a, a three or four week stretch, um, maybe a little bit longer. But I remember thinking after that season, you know, if he can just be a little um, less streaky for such a long time, you know, the 
the Valley's lasting so long. And then, obviously, 2019, he comes out and has, you know, a three-month stretch where he's one of the worst hitters in baseball. Um, so something that I think a lot of people thought, um, or I hope that he would improve on, um, obviously kind of went the other way because, you know, he'd never had a stretch that long, that bad, um, that as he had in 2019. I think he should. Uh, I think he should just bring back the the helmet because, you know, he ditched it at the end of 2018, if I remember correctly, and then he, th- he ditched it in well. the middle of the season, I think. Yeah, that's near the end of that season. Like actually during yeah. during the season, he ditched it, and I th- I think if he brought it back, maybe things would go a little differently. Agreed. Uh, yeah, uh, helmet flop. Reese was my favorite. Reese. He's got to come back to that. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I have his split so. When he had the helmet in 2018, uh, 282, 367, 564, and then since he went back to a normal helmet, uh, 230, 356, 467. It's not even close. Yeah, no, he, he needs to bring it back. <laughs> I think that should be um, Dylan's first first um, kind of order as the hitting coach, get him back to it. Um, yeah. Next thing we can talk about with this season, obviously... Um, a huge reason that they were able to be competing for the division into into August and September was kind of ironically their starting rotation, which was it, it seemed like one of their biggest weaknesses during 2019. But uh, headlined by Aaron Nola, the 2018 rotation was really good. Nola was excellent for just about the entire season, and. They got they got individual stretch individual stretches from uh, the rest of their their rotation that was that was really good you know Arietta started off really well for the team uh, Eflin in June was really good and then it was uh, you know it was a good season for Nick Pavetta where he had uh, good stretches as well Velasquez kind of was what he was but um I, I think in the back end of your rotation. You can, you can deal with that, and then uh, Ben Lively and Jared Eikhoff are also mixed in there as well. And that rotation, yes, they fell apart at the end of the season, but that was that was really the reason that they were that they were contenders at all. Uh, so yeah, they were good. Uh, obviously, Nola was incredible. I mean, he, that you know, if he if he has a year again in his career better than that, then. Um, the Phillies will, I think, do jump at that. He was just amazing. I think back to that game where he outpitched uh, Scherzer in uh, in DC and struck out, uh, you know, Bryce Harper in the eighth inning. That's that's right, like the peak of Aaron Nola's career. That was an amazing season he had. But guys, this, it goes back to and and, and Matt Klintek was correct again. It goes back to Klintek. Like he just kind of, I don't know, we can't see the forest through the trees. Like I remember one time during that season when they were talking about the trade deadline and he. He mentioned they had one of the top ten rotations in baseball, and to that moment, he was correct. But what what he didn't, I think, what he failed to realize was none of those guys had ever thrown two hundred innings outside of Arietta in the major leagues. So, like the idea of them staying strong through September was, or two hundred innings anyway, I should say, but they just they weren't built up. Like the idea of all those guys staying strong through September was was foolhardy, and they they kind of banked on it. And even Nola, when they got into September, late August. You know, he, he started to lose it a little bit, and the other guys just fell apart. And that that was really their only chance was to you know to limit teams um, you know with their starting pitching. And once that happened, it was like you know you, you could kind of see what was coming as it came. 
Yeah, uh, I was talking to to Johnny a little bit uh, before we recorded about this, and I think there definitely is um, the argument where you can say um, that you know they they haven't pitched that many innings, they they won't last. Like you could you could see a collapse coming, but at the same time, at the trade deadline, when the when the um, you know the best part of your team is the starting rotation, and it looks like you have some young guys emerging I think it is tough at that point to who like who which one do you take out of the rotation who do you replace and what do you give up when it was pretty obviously um there there were much bigger holes in in the lineup and even in the bullpen so while you could have predicted uh that they would collapse because they've never had that kind of workload before I I think in July it would have been kind of hard to uh to find somebody to replace and to see that as their biggest need. And maybe that's just a lack of foresight, but uh, that's... I, yeah, I, I do get where they're I, I wasn't from. pushing for them to get a starter, but you respect now, and I was wrong too, so I'm not going to pretend I, I was pushing for this, but you think about uh, Cole went to the Cups from the Rangers for nothing. He was basically begging to come back here. And, I mean, I know that that, uh, that July was about the Machado thing that they did, didn't do, but really, if they could have done one thing, it could have changed by the end of that season was Maybe acquiring Cole Hamels back. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it's worth. Hamels, I, I was definitely against a Hamels trade at that point just because he had been really bad in Texas. Um, but obviously, he, he went to Chicago and, and was really good down the stretch. And I do agree that um, adding him probably could have uh, changed the outcome. Um, but while, while we're on the subject of um, the trade deadline, I just want to touch on the moves they did make. Um, something me and, me and Ty talk, a lot about, uh, talk about a lot is um, that Klentak is has shown to be really good at making these um, really, you know, savvy, cheap moves that, that really pay off. You know, Corey Dickerson last year, um, the Luis Garcia trade for Jose Alvarez. And I think the, the one that stands out from the 2018 trade deadline is, is acquiring Wilson Ramos. Um, for a player to be named later, um, I don't know who that ended up being, but Ramos came and he ended up being um, just a really, really good hitter, which he has obviously always been, even though he's not great behind the plate. Um, it was just kind of a, a, a really solid acquisition considering the cost. I think it might have ended up being cash in the day. It was a good trade. Um, he is good at that. Uh, they're, they're, they're risky. It's, it's kind of two years in a row. Like Dickerson at Alvaro, uh, not Alvaro, uh, Ramos. It's kind of the same thing. They're constantly banged off. When they play, they really hit. And if you, you kind of roll the dice and it's a, it's a cheap roll, if you get something, you could have really good hitter, an all-star caliber hitter in your lineup for the last two months. Unfortunately, it's like the same thing two years in a row. Like, he just couldn't stay on the field. I remember all those games. They had a series uh, down in D.C. And like then they went to Toronto, then D.C., something like that on a road trip in late August. And like day-to-day, you know, Gabe – didn't know like he didn't know if if, um, if Ramos could play ended up being Alfaro in like four out of or five out of those games it just I, I agree he's, he's good at finding those deals for nothing and maybe one of these years is going to really pay dividends he's going to steal an all-star and that guy's going to lead him into the playoffs but it's just um, it's, it's kind of weird because I like the deals and I think he's good at that and then you kind of watch it play out and you're like man just that guy can't stay in the field yeah um, something that I always say about the Ramos deal that just I find to be funny. 
when you look at fan graphs and look at the Phillies position players in 2018, um, the player with the highest war on the team was actually Jorge Alfaro. And I always find it funny that they replaced him at the deadline. Um, you know, it, it's just something that, that I find interesting that, uh, you know, they did need help offensively, but, uh, Alfaro was pretty good defensively that season. He was a really good framer with a really good arm. And, uh, they had a lot of, that team had a lot of holes and, um, they signed Ramos and, or they traded for Ramos and he was good, but, uh, they needed help elsewhere. And the, the guys that they ended up getting either at the deadline or in, uh, in August with waiver trades, uh, many of them did not particularly help the team. Uh, they, like we talked about earlier with Kingery, they had really bad shortstop production. And I find this funny. They traded for Esgrubel Cabrera to play shortstop in 2018. Um, he, at, by this point, he was just not a shortstop, but they signed him to do it anyway. He was not particularly good. Uh, they made some other fringe moves there. They uh, For bullpen help, they uh, they traded for Aaron Loop, who pit, made nine outings, uh, I think four innings pitched. In his first appearance for the Phillies, he faced one batter, and he hit him with a pitch, and they took him right out. Uh, they got Jose Bautista, which is very weird and almost doesn't feel real, uh, but he was kind of all right for the Phillies that year. Uh and they also traded for Justin Bohr, who we talked about earlier. And Justin Bohr was part of the most hilarious Phillies lineup, maybe in history, that Johnny will talk about later. But they added a they added a bunch of these veteran guys, uh, and they would mix and match them in the lineup going down the stretch, and it did not particularly work. No, it didn't. Um, hey guys, I got I got to run in a second. I just got the WIP, but this has been a, a fun conversation. But the last thing I'll, I'll throw in on the deadline and kind of the, the stretch around the season, all those things made sense in a vacuum. Like, they were cheap. They could have had a little marginal value, value with the margins, that whole thing, and it just didn't work. Like, the guys didn't play well, and the Cabrera thing is funny. In fact, as you brought it up, it, I mean, Clinton kind of um, telegraphed his his, his offseason the next winter with those moves. Like, he upgraded a catcher, and then he did it again in a significant way with Real Mozilla, and then he did a shortstop, uh, Cabrera, and then... Um, Segura, so like it was kind of a precursor to, to the offseason that was coming. But yeah, they they tried to do small moves instead of the big move for like a Machado, and and really that was a smart thing because they, they knew they weren't good enough, and, and they weren't. But yeah, it's like every instinct they have, it's like the old George Costanza thing, you have an instinct that it's wrong, that the opposite must be right. That's that's been that contact's uh, general manager area in the Phillies. Guys, I, I appreciate you having me on. Yep, thanks, 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 thanks for coming on. Good stuff. I can't wait to listen. Thank you. And thanks again uh, to Joe Gilio, uh Sports Radio 94 WIP, for coming on, talking about this team with us. Me and Ty are going to uh, finish out the conversation. So uh, the first thing we wanted to talk about, Ty just mentioned uh, the most hilarious Phillies lineup in history. Um, so in early September, a couple things. So they had recently acquired Justin Bohr, um, a first baseman, and they had also started to realize that Reese Hoskins wasn't going to be able to stick in left field for the foreseeable future. Obviously, this was an issue because they had Carlos Santana, a first baseman, signed through 2021. 
or sorry, 2020, uh, the end of 2020. So they had to figure out, you know, a way to make it work where they could keep both guys and, and not have Hoskins, literally the worst left fielder of all time, uh, playing out there. So they started to play Santana at third base. And so the lineup, this is on September 8th, um, a game against the Mets. The lineup ended up having Carlos Santana, Justin Bohr, and Reese Hoskins in it, which I I just think is great. They basically gave Kapler through three first basemen into the same lineup. Like, none of those guys should ever play a position that isn't first base. Um, you know, Carlos Santana, actually, like, he wasn't horrible at third base, but... He played um, left field in the World Series. It's true. Carlos Santana, you know, he caught for the first three or four years of his career. <laughs> and I'm just saying, listen, I'm just throwing this out there. If JC Realmuto walks, you, <laughs> Carlos Santana contract, Carlos Santana's uh, contract expires. You call up, <laughs> how old is he going to be? Call up 35 year old Carlos Santana and, and ask him if he wants to come back to Philadelphia to catch. I I doubt that he would do that, but you you can never rule anything out if you offer enough money. That's true. Um, now he was pretty bad defensively when he was in his mid twenties, so I can only imagine uh, how that would look at this age. Especially because when do you think the last time he caught a game was? <laughs> I just listen. I live for bad defense, and and I think it would be great. Um, but back to this lineup, which is really the epitome of bad defense, because so they have Justin Bohr at first, Carlos Santana at third, Reese Hoskins at left. They also have Estrubal Cabrera at shortstop, another guy who's out of position. He can't really play. Um, and, you know, the Phillies ended up losing this game 10-5. Uh, to 5. It's really irrelevant to the... I, I just think it, it's a great lineup, and I, it's, you know, always just has stood out to me. Yeah, it's very, very, very weird uh, and funny and kind of a representation of that whole season. You know, they were mixing and matching. They were weird, um, but they were competing somehow. And I think that has... It's kind of a symbol of that that very odd season under first-year manager Gabe Kapler, but (laughs) it was definitely kind of fun to observe uh, yeah and like uh like joe said a lot of this stuff kind of it works in a vacuum and it didn't didn't actually work and and i think one thing that matt clintack really didn't consider at all when, when building this roster and and you know patching it up throughout the season is uh the important importance of having like a, a at least a a decent defense um the phillies were just horrible um you know beyond errors and all that it's it's really about you're playing when you play enough guys out of position or, or at, at positions where they're below average it's really going to hurt your pitchers um the infield defense was not really good uh kingery he he grew into shortstop a little bit but you know when you're when you have astro Cabrera and michael franco on the left side uh of the infield neither of those guys have a lot of range um and you know balls will get through and and the same thing in the outfield. Guys won't be able to get to balls that, you know, even average MLB outfielders can get to. And that, over the course of 162 games, can really, really negatively affect uh, <laughs> your team. And I think that's that's one thing that, uh, like I said, I don't think 
Matt Klintak really fully took that into account putting together this roster. Yeah, I I agree there. Um, just I still can't get over the weirdness of that first baseman lineup. It's very very Basic. weird. Yeah, definitely. definitely I mean, Wilson new. Ramos was in it too, and like, is Wilson Ramos is he really a catcher? Like, barely. Can't we really just consider him a first baseman? I mean, Franco's played the, first base too. It's true. Basically, every guy in that lineup plays first base. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, moving on from that, we just have a few more topics that we want to hit before we wrap this up. Um, one of the one of the moments, individual games that stand out from this season was, uh, you know, in August the Phillies are clinging on to first place in the division. It looks like they're going to collapse. Uh, t- other teams are starting to gain on them. But the Phillies are playing the Marlins on a Thursday night, wearing the old-school powder blue uniforms. Uh, they're losing in the ninth inning. They're losing, right? And I'm- Yeah, they they slapped a bunch of infield hits. I think the, the tying... The game tying hit was a uh, the bases were loaded with one out and Nick Williams just hit a little dribbler. Or he didn't. Yeah. So so this is against the Marlins ninth inning. They're facing Kyle Bearclaw. Um, they're they're losing like I said, and then I think his bases loaded like you said. Uh, they had another infield hit I believe, but Nick Williams this wasn't a hit, but he gets it right by the right by the pitcher who kind of like falls over <laughs> reaching for the ball, and then. Um, they, they throw Nick Williams out at first base. So there's two outs, um, two runners still on, um, and Michael Franco walks up to the plate, and he gets a pitch that is down in the zone. Like, he went he went down and got this. It, it was a ball, actually. It was low. Uh, he golfs it for a high-flying fly ball. Uh, left fielder's back at the wall. It's tough to tell if it's gonna go out at first, and then it just barely gets out, just over the uh, the bushes or the flower bed in uh, left field, and is a walk off home run for the Phillies. They cling on to first place um, in that game. They they keep their lead barely, um, but Michael Franco with the walk off home run in epic fashion. He. Um, so this is a an elite move, really. He he's watching the ball, he's talking to it, and then he bat flips. It goes out, and he bat flips so hard that his helmet flies off, like before he's even halfway down the first base line, and he he runs the bases with no helmet on. Um, he he jumps in the home in the, on the home plate. They throw gum at him. Uh, there's gum flying everywhere. Uh, it was just, a, it was a cool moment. It was funny. The bat flip was awesome. Uh, one of the, one of the first, you know, helmetless home run trots I can remember since I'm pretty sure Jerick's in Profar when he was a rookie. I don't know why I remember this, but the one time he, he hit a walk-off home run and then, you know how they usually like fling their home, their helmet off when they round third? Yeah. He did it, like, when he got to first, and he, like, talked to the first base coach. It was pretty funny. But, uh, yeah, one of the first helmetless home run trots I can remember since that. What do you... I just want to know what you remember about this very, very wild moment for this team. 
I mean, there are a couple things. Like, I know this is this is the beginning of of August, right? Yeah. Um, and the Phillies were still in first, but they had started to kind of um, disappear a little bit. And then this game happens, and and it was one of those things that uh, you really felt like they would build off of, and. So from that standpoint, obviously that didn't happen, but I, I, that's kind of what it felt like. Kind of similar to what Harper's walk-off and the Cubs series felt like this year. Um, and obviously neither really manifested themselves into being those moments that turned the season around or whatever. But um, as far as the bat flip itself, I mean, it was just epic. Uh, me and you, we were talking earlier about um, what was better, that or the Harper in... Washington one, and I guess they're they're different because they're. What did you say? You said that the Harper one was just straight up disrespectful. Yeah, Harper's bad flip in, in his first game back in Washington. Um, that was like very disrespectful. Like that was definitely a, a statement to the Washington fans who were booing him. Uh, like like that was definitely it, disrespectful in some regard. Uh, and the Franco one was just kind of pure joy. Like, he was just, that was just a joyous reaction. He bat-flipped it, like, behind his head, and it knocked his helmet off. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, both, obviously, great moments. Um, we live for bat-flips and that kind of stuff, because baseball's a fun sport, uh, and it should be fun. Um, but moving on, uh, I guess we should talk about the other rather significant walk-off home run that happened in this season. Um, it was actually the, the Phillies' first walk-off home run in over two years uh, when Ryan Howard had one in, I think, April of 2016 against the Indians. Uh, and this is a, a game in the beginning of July against the Nationals. It's a day game, and it's it's like it was really hot and humid. So what was it, the 13th inning? Yeah, 13th inning. And, you know, there's like no one left at Citizens Bank Park um, just because of the, the weather and, and the fact that it's a, a day game. And, and the fact that the fans day. rightfully did not buy into the 2018 Phillies and the stadiums were not particularly full for much of the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it is It is kind of crazy how it, it never really... the the, the Stadium never filled out at all. Even they were in first place for four months, um, and it, it never came back really until 2019. But, anyways, Andrew Knapp comes up to the plate and absolutely crushes a um, solo home run off of Justin Miller, and the Phillies win. So Andrew Knapp hit second the deck first. second deck yeah off of yeah crushed it. I mean, like I said, Howard hit the last one. The last walk off and, and the one that hit that was really uh Howard territory right there. Um Yeah, um the Phillies also this season made a couple more walk off home runs that come to the top of my head that we can just brush on before we uh talk about the collapse. Um Trevor Plouffe hit a walk off home run in extra innings against Kike Hernandez who is a position player for the Dodgers. That game, it won a bunch of extras, and it just felt like uh, whoever was going to run out of pitchers first was going to lose, and that's pretty much how it how it went. It seemed like the Phillies were, they didn't want to crack and, and throw a position player 
first, and it worked out for them in that game at least. Uh, and then another one, Escriba Cabrera hit a um, walk-off home run to left center against the Cubs near the end of the season. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't think there were any more. Do you remember any? Um, I don't think there were any other walk-off home runs. Uh, a game we should touch on quickly. Um, Nick Pavetta threw a gem against the Cardinals that um, I think seven innings, maybe a couple runs, and 12 strikeouts. It was probably the best start of his career. Either that or another dominant one he had in Baltimore a couple months prior, but um, after you know, after he came out, the, the bullpen blew the game, and then um, Phillies were, I think it was tied 4-4? No, I think it was 3-3 in the extras, and the Cardinals scored one in the top of the 10th, of the and then um, Aaron Altair came up in the bottom of the 10th with an out, one out, guys on first and second, hit a, hit a like pretty sharp line drive to left field and and marcelo zuna who is pretty well known for misplaying fly balls uh really misplayed it and he dove and it went, got by him and the phillies won because both runners scored because he you know dove for a ball he had no business diving for because he was not going to catch it yeah um i'm pretty sure like maybe if he keeps it in front of him like no run score yeah it was hit that hard, like, maybe one run scores, but still, I mean, there were one out, so I don't know if the, the guys were running right as the ball was hit, um, but obviously there was that that play um, in, I think it was in St. Louis this year, where, yeah, like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what team it was against, but, but Ozuna, like, hopped up on the fence, like, he was about to rob a home run, and then realized the ball was going to land like on the warning track and <laughs> dove back trying to get it. It was just one of the most absurd things I've ever seen. So, um, you know, we talked a lot about how Reese Hoskins has, is not a good left fielder, but Marcelo Zuna, another another guy who has been known to uh, misjudge some balls. Yeah, in this, in this game from 2018, um, Michael Franco, he makes a play in this game um, at third that's kind of like a combination of that uh, Manny Machado play uh, when he's, like, deep into foul territory and makes, like, this awesome throw. It's kind of a combination of the Machado play and the Derek Cheater jump throw. Um, like, that's basically what it was. It was pretty impressive from Franco, who's not, an ex- like, an outstanding third baseman. He has limited range, but his arm is all right, and that play was really awesome. Yeah, it was it was great. Um I think I, I tweeted it a couple weeks ago. If anyone's looking for it, but um, like you said, it was. I think I think 2018. Like I don't remember having any opinions on Michael Franco as a as a third baseman um, earlier in his career. And you know, I don't think I think he's he's overrated by some because of the plays he makes. But 2018 was the first year where he was just... I mean, obviously this play was the best one, but he had a couple of other plays, and it was like, is this guy like Nolan Arenado? (laughs) Obviously he's not, and he doesn't really actually have range, but some of the plays he's made, and he has a really good arm, and it it was just kind of crazy to see Franco making these plays. Yeah, um, you ready to wrap it up with the... uh... 
just talking about the September collapse. I am, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, so obviously, um, they like we said, they were clinging on to first place in the beginning to mid-August. Uh, and we talked about this with Joe earlier. The rotation just didn't have it. The lineup wasn't good enough. Nola and Hoskins both ran out of gas, it looked like. And the Phillies just, what, they finish in third or fourth place? Finished in third. I mean, the, they were ahead of the Nationals for most of the season, but I think, like, within the last week, uh, the Nats passed. It was, I think, you know, they they started to fall apart, obviously, in August, late August, and the Braves passed them. But even into the last two weeks of the season, um, they had seven of their last 10 or 11 games were against the Braves, so that even though they were like five and a half games back, there was still kind of like a decent chance for them to make the playoffs just if they could handle the Braves, which they obviously were unable to do. And it was just crazy, you know, that a team that had, you know, was up 14, 15 games over 500 into August uh, was not even able to finish at 500. They, they went 80 and 82. So it was a, a crazy collapse, and I think it was... You know, it's it's something that people blame Gabe Kapler for, but you know, it, you know, for some bogus reasons of like not being able to motivate the team or, or whatever whatever that means. But it, it really came down to what we talked about earlier, which is you know the rotation was Jake Garrietta and four guys who had never thrown 200 innings in a season, um, and I think nothing that they did the first four months of the season was sustainable and it caught up to them and they kind of fell apart and obviously they finished well out of the playoff race yeah um in your opinion uh, was 2018 a successful year yeah for the Phillies? i think so i think if you know you told people going into 2018 that they would win 80 games that most people have been happy with that. No one really expected them to, to be a playoff team, and I, I think the fact that they stuck around. I mean, we, talk, we talked about Gabe Kapler's first impression. In August, he was considered maybe a frontrunner for manager of the year. Um, I think, you know, the, the team overperformed, um, and obviously it caught up to them, but, but for a while there, it looked like, you know, they were actually going to make the playoffs, and I think even though they didn't, um, you can't really blame anybody. It was look at the team on paper it just was not a very good team yeah I I, I would agree they overperformed um, just the way that they they ended was was ugly like if they played they managed somehow uh, like like because of how the the pitching was just kind of worn out it was never gonna go this way but if they put the losing like that right in the middle and they start off well and finish well I think uh, the season seemed very differently but um yeah for sure. But it didn't, and, it didn't. you know, they clearly needed to upgrade, and then they did during the offseason. Uh, so, yeah, do you have you have anything else to add about the 2018 Phillies, though? I don't think I do. Yeah, I, I think Looking we... Looking forward to next week. Yeah, I think we covered just about everything. Thanks again to... Joe Giglio for hopping on uh, most of this discussion. Uh, thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next week about the 2019 Phillies. You
can listen to the Phillies Nation podcast with Ty Daubert and Johnny Heller every Wednesday on philliesnation.com and all streaming services.